Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, September 1st, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Jan Simpson and Peter Felicia. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at MTI Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the Director of the Arts and Culture Journalism Project at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY and also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. She sits on the Executive Board of the Outer Critics Circle and is a member of the American Theater Critics Association. On top of all those credits, Jan also has her own podcast called Stagecraft, which runs on the Broadway Radio Network. And uh, we had a great little interview there with Bess Wall of uh, Make Believe yesterday, Jan. Yeah, yeah. She's so smart. She's really, <laughs> really, really smart woman. Uh, you know, anybody who can write a, uh, a play, a small mouth sounds with basically no dialogue is... <laughs> right. <you know? laughs> and it was yeah. actually, and it was actually uh, the economy of words is, is the special part of it. First up in our review section... Uh, Peter, you got down to Cape May, New Jersey to see Sally Mays in a production of Sidekick. So um, tell us about this. Well, uh, Sidekicked um, refers to the fact that Vivian Vance was the sidekick to Lucille Ball and for that matter, uh, Desi Arnaz, in um, the I Love Lucy TV series that started in 1951 and morphed into an hour-long show and stayed around until 1960 and doing quite well. We're now in the dressing room of uh, Vivian Vance on the final shooting day. So um, she's talking to her psychiatrist. Now, she's talking fourth wall to us, but apparently the psychiatrist is there, which is a little strange to me because I don't think psychiatrists make dressing room calls any more than they make house calls. But anyway, that's the, so I thought, okay, you know what it is? She's practicing. She's rehearsing for when she goes to a shrink, but at the end she writes him a check and, you know, so I guess he's supposed to be there. Well, the audience really blanched a bit when um, the first time she said the F word. Now, if you've read the biography, The Other Side of Ethel Mertz, a terrific book that came out almost 20 years ago, you'll know that um, Vivian Vance was no shrinking Venus flytrap. I mean, she was a tough lady. Um, It's very clear that she slept her way to the middle when she was doing Broadway. Agnes DeMille thought that she was very responsible for getting her fired from a show. So Vivian Vance was actually cast as Mrs. Mullins in the original Carousel. That's uh, Billy's employer who cans him because uh, he won't stop fooling around with Julie. So she was actually cast. But then um, Agnes DeMille, who was, of course, the choreographer who just came off this enormous game-changing success with Oklahoma – uh, said uh, over my dead body, it's her or me. And um, as a result, Vivian Vance was fired. Um, well, 
the real interesting thing to me is that Vivian Vance admits late in this one-person show by a guy named Kim Powers that she was doing a production of The Voice of the Turtle. That was a big 40s hit, by the way, and perhaps one of the first plays to let producers know, you know, if you only have three characters in a show, you could run longer. So anyway, she was doing the play in a regional production and had a nervous breakdown on stage, on stage. And as a result, she couldn't finish the performance, and her understudy, the then unknown Patricia Neal, actually took over the part. for the. And then Vivian Vance said, and for two years, nobody would hire me. Okay, you would think under those circumstances that when Desi Arnaz came along and said, we want you to play Ethel Mertz in this show, that she would be phenomenally grateful. Um, However, she's really not, and she really complains a great deal in this show. And it gets very wearing to hear her complain. Now, none of this is Sally May's fault. Now, granted, Sally May doesn't look like Vivian Vance. Granted, she doesn't sound like Vivian Vance. Um, Ironically... When she imitates Lucy and Ricky, she's very good. (laughs) Um, uh, So uh, a big success there. So there's nothing wrong with her performance whatsoever. However, it's a play that makes her whine quite a bit. And it's very hard to have sympathy for a woman who's doing so well. At this point in time, Ricky has offered, Desi, (laughs) Desi has offered her a $50,000 signing bonus Signing bonus. That doesn't mean a salary. That comes later. A signing bonus to uh, appear in a spinoff. And Sally May says the word very well, because in those days, um, this was a new term. It hadn't happened yet in uh, TV. So a spinoff to do a show called Ethel and Fred. And therefore, all her complaints about being the second banana, she, she mentions the term second banana, and I want to be the first banana. Well, here's her chance. But she doesn't want to work with William Frawley. Okay. Now I did a little math and I found out that, um, the money factor is really something that the $50,000 signing bonus today would be worth $430,000. And that's a considerable amount of money and just to sign your name on uh, the bottom line. And then I don't know what her salary would be, but she was, she does admit that in her final days of I Love Lucy, well, it was called the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour or something like that, um, that she was getting 4500 a week. Okay. Now, 40, that's a lot of money, too. And um, so that would be um, a yearly gross of $202,500 or $1,853,000 in today's dollars. So that's a million dollars, almost $2 million a year. The average salary today for Americans, by the way, is now $49,445. Now, of course, everybody who's a second banana wants to be a star. Um, I remember a lot of people saying, gee, that Laurie Metcalf is really good on that TV series. Um, I wonder if anything will ever happen with her, if she'll ever get a chance to be um, the top banana. And of course she has, at least on Broadway. So as a result, um, we can appreciate ambition. We understand that. But for her to complain about working with William Frawley because he expels gas a great deal, um, that Lucy wasn't really very nice to her uh, and never uh, really appreciated her, uh, things like that, 
you know, what's the problem? David Merrick used to say one of the reasons Gypsy didn't run longer was the fact that people do not care about the problems of show business people. They don't really see them as problems. The obvious uh, exception is Chorus Line because those are people who are starting out or still trying to make it. But Vivian Vance made it. Everybody in the country knew who she was. She talks about um, the fact that uh, people regard her as Ethel Mertz. That when they, somebody asked for an autograph, she signed Vivian Vance. They said, no, I want Ethel Ethel Mertz. Well, you know, if this is one of your biggest problems, I mean, you don't have any problems. So it's very hard for the audience to really care about Vivian Vance. And that audience uh, last Wednesday night just sat there. I mean, they did not want to hear this. They wanted to hear charming, funny stories about I Love Lucy. They don't want to hear I Love Lucy destroyed, um, that people didn't get along, that uh, they weren't uh, four happy people. And the irony is it starts with um, the projection on the back wall of that famous shot when Ricky's driving the convertible and Lucy's next to him and the Mertzes are in the back and they're all singing California, here I come, because Ricky is about to go out to California to film Don Juan. And they're so happy and everybody's getting along. And then you hear the reality. And it's it, I, I think it really is a case where we just don't want to see I Love Lucy sullied in this way. So, again, no fault of... Um, Sally Mays, none whatsoever. And I do think that if um, Kim Powers had started with the uh, story of the fact that Vivian Vance's mother thought she was the whore of Babylon, which could be effectively argued she turned out to be, uh, and she had that nervous breakdown, before we get to the Lucy stuff, we might have more sympathy. But starting out with complaining about I Love Lucy and, and, and uh, all this kind of business, I think really turns out to be a very, very flat evening. All right, so that is uh, sidekicked at the uh, Cape May <laughs> stage in Cape May, New Jersey, and it's going through September 20th. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Jan, you got down to Walker Space to see a play called Eureka Day, uh, so tell us about this. Uh, this is a really interesting uh, little piece. Uh, it's by a playwright I never heard of called Jonathan Spector. Uh, it uh, originated out in uh, California and it's about uh, a nursery school. Eureka Day is the name, of, uh, the name of the nursery school, a nursery school that's out there in the Bay Area. The play uh, did very well out there, uh, has transferred to the Walker space where Soho Rep usually uh, produces. And it's got, it's been recast with New York actors and it's got this dynamic cast, uh, Tina Benko, Thomas J. Ryan, uh, Elizabeth Carter, uh, KK, uh, Moji, Brian Wiles. Um, and it centers around this very woke, with the quotation marks, uh, uh, nursery school. And the people that we meet, the five characters that we meet are the head of the nursery school, a guy named Don, and the four board members. And they have uh, just welcomed a new board member. Uh, and she is a black woman and a lesbian, and she and her wife have just enrolled their um 
son at the school. Tina Benko plays this woman, Suzanne, who's one of the founders of uh, this school and is the most aggressive in terms of making sure that everyone and everything is politically correct. And when the sh- when the play first started, I thought, this isn't going to be for me because it seemed like a broad, almost farce or like a, a, a sitcom with everybody correcting everybody and being sure that they were using the correct terms and so on. But then something happens. And what happens is that one of the kids at the school develops measles. And it turns out the kid has measles because uh, she wasn't vaccinated. And it then pivots to this debate over vaccination, uh, which a lot of, uh, I guess, schools are dealing with and parents are questioning. There's a whole strain of people who believe that uh, vaccinations uh, contribute to autism uh, or just don't want their children uh, injected with these uh, live agents. There are other parents who are very concerned that if we don't go through these procedures, then kids can develop diseases and and some of these diseases can have very serious effects. But it's a two-act play, and in the second act, the the show becomes much more uh, uh, dramatic. We really get to know why these people feel the way they do. And arguments on all sides are presented really fairly. And we don't often, when we get these sort of issues plays or debate plays, sometimes the arguments tip way uh, one way or way the other because we all know what right-minded people are thinking. And this play doesn't do that. It it makes compelling arguments on all sides uh, and wherever your feelings are, uh, you don't necessarily change. I didn't necessarily change my mind about what I think should happen with vaccinations, but I had a better understanding of where people might be coming from who had an opposite effect. Needless to say, with this cast, it is marvelously uh, acted. I think the only thing wrong with this show, really, is that it's in a very small space. So it's going to be very hard to, uh, once the word starts traveling about it. The New York Times has already made it a critic's pick. Uh, Once the word starts traveling, I think it's going to be very hard to get a ticket. But if you get one, it's it's worth seeing. I have to say I saw it too, and uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think this play is very, very skillful in going from what seems to be, ah, this is going to be fun. We're going to laugh at all these parents who are just Mm -hmm. uh, so over-concerned, blah, blah, blah. And then it really takes a dramatic turn. And Tina Benko is marvelous when she has Mm -hmm. to make her dramatic turn. So this really is a very, very fine play and um, does, I think, (laughs) everything right. And uh, I'm glad we're on the same page on this, Jan. Yeah, yeah. Okay, 
So that is Eureka Day down at Walker Space. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Playing through September 21st, so you have about 20 days to go see it uh, and get your tickets. As Jan mentioned, it's a tiny space. Uh, next up, I got over to Second Stage to see Make Believe. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Jan interviewed uh, Bess Wall, the writer uh, for Make Believe. We also interviewed uh, Bess... Uh, about a year or so ago on Broadway Radio. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I'll have a link to both of those things, but listen to Jan's first because it's better than mine. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, actually, I was part of that first interview. Were you? Too. Okay. Yes. See, both I was of on them were that great. episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm eager to hear what you think of the show. What did you think? Um, so make believe let's, uh, set the stage for, uh, I'm going to read the synopsis that they provide because mm-hmm. I'm so afraid of spoiling anything, but I'll put out there, uh, what they're saying in public. So the, the synopsis of it is, uh, when does, when does life collide with, uh, make believe for the four Conley kids, ages five to 10 playing house is no longer a game when their parents inexplicably disappear. 32 years later, their search for answers continues. Bess wall returns to second stage after her funny and poignant play American hero with a look inside the minds of children, their parents and the mysteries of childhood that haunt us forever. Um, so, uh, you know, the basically first uh, half, maybe the mm-hmm. first uh, third of the show was uh, the children between the ages of five and ten were played by real children, unlike uh, the a, 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 a trend of having adults play children. That would have been interesting. Uh, and um, so after I got over the uh, the novelty of children playing children in this production <laughs> uh because i i don't know if it's like that for either one of you but when i see kids playing kids the f- uh, first couple of minutes i'm like on the edge of my seat going are these kids going to be terrible and am i going to have to figure out what's going on here or are they actually good and these kids are actually really good the the four children <laughs> that are actors in this production are very good um and get across this point and it was uh it you know it, it's somewhat terrifying especially uh that section where somebody comes pounding on the door um you know it, it's a very scary type of thing uh and uh and so i i can understand uh the point of saying this and i didn't know of course what was coming next um, but when we flash forward to the uh, the crux of the show, uh, when the children are adults and back in the same space, uh, they start to color in and f- uh, or or fill in the backstory of what was happening when the four of them were were in this seemingly attic space where they was their play area as children. Um, I think it's a really important uh, thing to talk about the the relationships between uh the brothers and sisters and what happened back then to uh understand what is happening in this story i think that again best wall has put together uh put together a story that is uh worth everybody's time 
to get down to the Second Stage Theater and watch what's happening here. It's well directed by Michael Greif. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the cast, both children and adults, are very, very good. Uh, purposely not talking about more of what happens there because it's important for the reveal for you to experience it on your own. So mm-hmm. um, get over and listen to uh, Jan's interviews, plural, of uh, Bess Wall <laughs> <laughs> on Broadway Radio. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. She's so interesting because she likes the idea of setting a, a challenge for herself. Uh, she said she likes to break out of the theatrical box. And as you mentioned, Small Mouse Sounds had very little dialogue and yet was a very funny play. Um, and also uh, 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 moving in parts, but, uh, but a funny play. And this play, she set out to defy the, the, the adage that you don't put kids in plays. Hmm. And she, she decided that she wanted to write a play in which children play children and in which the play centered around them and their, their issues, their perceptions of the world and where uh, adults weren't the, the main engine. And so it's, it's really interesting the way uh, that her, her, her mind works, uh, I think. Um, Peter, Peter, did you see it? I did, and I have to say that I agree that it's very successful on that level and many other levels as well. Um, it, it, very nice to see kids playing kids as opposed to do- adults doing it, which always takes uh, a stretch of our imaginations and makes it so unreal. And like James, I was petrified at the beginning that the kids were going to, be, to, to stink, and they certainly didn't, or even that they would be hard to understand, which often happens with young kids. But even the youngest of them uh, certainly did a very fine job in articulating so and you know the other thing too i was talking about this the other day with somebody um like when somebody's soft on stage and you can't hear them at the beginning somehow you adjust and you really um find yourself hearing more as time goes on somehow your ears just do the work for you and um here i was concerned that (laughs) I'd have to wait a while for that to kick in, but I didn't because the kids were really so good. But I think it's a really um, phenomenally fascinating idea to take um, these kids and then show what became of them growing up. And so many times um, our expectations for what kids will turn out to be turn out to be startlingly different. And I'm also thinking of um, what's the play, something like dog versus God about Mm. the peanuts characters. Um, and they're grown up, and suddenly Charlie Brown is not the outcast, but I think Linus is. And, I mean, things like that are really, really so compelling because you have these preconceived notions of what people are going to be. And uh, the playwright here sets that up wonderfully and saying, okay, this is what this kid's going to be, and this is what this kid's going to be. And it doesn't turn out to be what you think it's going to be. So um, I do think that the mention of a person who was involved with um, – creating a very popular search engine, um, (laughs) I would think that there'd be um, much more dynamics going on there for somebody who was so rich and powerful. I don't think that was addressed terribly well. But aside from that, I thought it was a terrific play. Yeah, I thought that 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 character, uh, as you were alluding to, was very strangely underwritten. Yeah, yeah. and somehow seemed to be on the spectrum 
but but I see what you mean. Yeah, you know, uh, was was also. I know what you mean. While being recognition, yeah, yeah, while being on the spectrum, also had very aggressive antisocial behavior at at that when he first re-entered as an adult. Uh, and I thought very strange that Michael Greif put him, uh, you know, upstage right in the shadows for a good section of the adult conversation, and he more or less disappeared, uh, almost like he couldn't make those couple of weeks of rehearsal, and so they just blocked him out of the, out of that scene. Mm-hmm. I, uh, that was, uh, I think that there's there's got to be more to a story there. There's so, something was very inconsistent about the writing of that character. And it, it, I'm glad you brought that up because I had forgotten about that. But doesn't he also, as a child, he's off stage, he's out of sight, he doesn't interact with the other kids? He's he's in the house a lot. He's, yeah. He's in the but what house. I'm saying is that um, if Mark Zuckerberg turned out to be one of those kids, mm. and there is an analogy here, um, if Mark Zuckerberg turned out to be one of those kids, um, the dynamics among the the, um, <clears throat> the the siblings, as well as what we hear about the people downstairs, um, the people who have been invited to the house, I won't say why, um, there would be a different dynamic if, if Mark yeah. Zuckerberg came into the room. And this guy is reasonably analogous to that, maybe even perfectly analogous to that. I don't want to give away too mm-hmm. much. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, I, I do feel that that was something uh, I was shocked when it turned out to find out that um, he was essentially a Mark Zuckerberg. So that's what I mean. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. that's uh, mm-hmm. that's all true. But then let me let me ask the one quick question. Maybe then, because of um, how you felt he was uh, staged, you won't agree with this. But I have a question about about Michael Greif. He has done so much work, so varied work, the way from Rent on, and he the way he was able to get such you know performances from these kids. Why is it that Michael Greif never gets awards he never gets recognized yeah isn't that something and don't forget uh, he's the only person to direct uh, two pulitzer prize winning musicals because yes. he was not only on rent but also on next to normal so uh it's true uh i do good point jan i do think we've been taking him for granted I guess, you know, I'm reminded of what Marilyn Cooper said when she won her Tony for Woman of the Year. Now, that was 1981, and two years earlier, she was an understudy in ballroom. Uh, but this brings up a good point about the Vivian Vance thing, by the way. And um, and Marilyn Cooper's Tony speech included um, the sentiment, I guess if you sit at the poker table long enough, eventually you come up with a winning hand. So as a result, um, even though Michael Greif has had many winning hands per se, um, maybe he's going to uh, take a while more to get uh, acknowledged. Um, to uh, maybe this play will um, move to Broadway, and maybe he'll get acknowledged. Who knows? But uh, I agree. I agree, Jan. You have a very good point in saying that um, he hasn't gotten enough credit, considering all the major shows that he's done. Yeah, we're talking Rent, Grey Gardens, Next to Normal, Dear Evan Hansen. What yeah, does the guy have to do? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> he needs his change. He needs to change his middle name from nominee to winner. 
really? <laughs> the sooner the better. <laughs> okay, so that is Make Believe at Second Stage, playing at the Tony Kaiser Theater. Uh, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Peter, you got from Cape May, New Jersey, up to the uh, Goodspeed Opera House in uh, Connecticut to see Because of Wind Dixie. Now, I didn't realize that this was a... Uh, uh, a movie first, but in my little research here, I saw that this was a this was based on a movie. So, what do we think of this? Well, first off, let me say you have to understand that I've seen Ethel Merman, I've seen Mary Martin, I've seen Barbara Streisand. Not only and I can get a few wholesale, but Funny Girl twice. I've seen Audra McDonald. I've seen Julie Harris. I've seen Angela Lansbury, and I have never seen a performer get entrance applause so quickly and exit applause so quickly in so short a period of time. And I am talking about Bodie, the dog, in uh, Because of Winn-Dixie. When the the, uh, panels are apart as the show starts and you see the dog there, this adorable dog um, that you immediately fall in love with. Everybody in the audience went crazy for the dog. We applauded immediately. The dog gets up, walks off stage, and we applaud again. I mean, it was just amazing. (laughs) This dog is tremendous. At intermission, I spoke to one of the um, Goodspeed uh, staffers, and I found out something extraordinarily interesting. Now, it has to do with the fact that, let's remember, that, uh, what is it, 43 years ago, there was also a show with a dog up at Goodspeed and a little girl, which is also fundamental because of Winn-Dixie. And that was, of course, Annie. Okay, and I'm looking at this dog doing amazing things and thinking, wow, Sandy didn't nearly have to do as much as this dog. And I mentioned this at intermission to one of the staffers who told me that Sandy had nine cues during the show. This dog has 209 cues during the show. So this is uh, the most amazing performance I've ever seen by an animal. Of course, you don't essentially go to a show to, um, well, you, you might go to Madison Square Garden in January to see show dogs. But, I mean, in a musical, you want something more than that, as wonderful as the dog is. And um, certainly the dog gets um, as much applause as anybody else at the final curtain. Again, where they found this, uh, Bill Berloni, by the way, um, trains dogs. And he started with Annie at good speed. When they were doing uh, Annie, they said to one of their interns, I think he was an intern, he may have been uh, an employee, but I think he was an intern, saying, go out and find a dog that, that'll be good for you. And, and it became his career, training dogs. Um, and he's really, I, I doubt there has been any major show that, with a, an, uh, an animal where Bill Berloni hasn't been involved. And here he has really outdone himself. He found the right dog and he certainly trained it spectacularly. So, all right. Fine. What's what's the story about? Uh, for those who haven't seen the movie that came out in 2005, uh, we're talking about um, a little girl, um, preteen maybe, um, not uh, – I don't think any older, uh, whose father is a preacher. And the father is moving from town to town. And just when – just when she's um, making friends and having a good time, the father says, we're moving. And um, and this is um, really a very, very hard thing for Opal, as the girl's name is, as it would be for any kids. So we all identify with this. We've all, most of us have had this experience where we've had to move and lose our friends and we have to start from scratch. Anyway... Nell Benjamin, who is one of our most stunning lyricists and did the book on this show, made a very smart decision. Now, let me tell you what happens in the movie. In the movie, Opal goes to the Winn-Dixie, a convenience store, uh, 
And when she gets in there, there is a dog that is running amok. It is how the dog got in the store. We don't know. But the dog is in there and it's creating such chaos such chaos, knocking over this, that, and the other thing. People are chasing it, and as they're chasing it, they're knocking over things. The store is a mess because of this dog, and everybody's really uh, very upset. And finally, Opal wants to rescue the dog and says, it's my dog. Okay, now if that were the case, wouldn't the manager of the store say, okay, you get your father down here. He's going to pay for the damages or something like that? I mean, I find that a real problem that they they let her um, get away with it, maybe because she's a little girl. But still, I think there would be more ramifications than we see in the movie. Okay, I think Noel Benjamin did, too, because what happens here is everybody assumes that it's the kid's dog, that she brought the dog into the store. Because, you know, when you're a little kid, you get blamed more. It's easy to blame a a little kid than an adult. Adult uh, has more uh, ability to fight back, uh, at least verbally. And so um, you would expect that um, adults, uh, a manager of the store would uh, lay it on a kid. And they do. Uh, Everybody in the store starts criticizing the kid, saying, it's your dog. And the kid says, it's not my dog. It's not my dog dog. Um, But when she leaves the store, she thinks, well, maybe it should be my dog. I need a friend and this dog can be my friend. I think that's much stronger. I I am telling you, there are things in the movie that happen. uh, There's one incident, I'm not going to give it away, but one incident happens followed by another incident, followed by another incident. And I'm telling you, Nell Benjamin found a way of joining all three of these incidents together in one scene, telescoping it, which is to me the greatest achievement since Winnie Holtzman took that enormously long first chapter in Wicked and (laughs) made it into a single song and you didn't miss anything uh, in it. So um, a really terrific achievement by Nell Benjamin, who once again is working with Duncan Sheik. Um, and uh, this is uh, who will always be remembered for Spring Awakening. Uh, we're, by the way, in the Deep South, uh, as many might know, just from the um, existence of a Win Dixie. Uh, and um, so he, he has this nice thumping country score, and he gets a, a spiritual in there because, after all, the father's the preacher. The father is a very understanding man, wonderfully played by J. Robert Spencer, who we may remember from Jersey Boys, and um, wonderfully kind, just as wonderful as Jeff Daniels is in the movie. A terrific, terrific performance. And um, trying to do the best for his daughter, uh, not wanting the dog at all, at all, at all. Um, But, um, you know, he knows that his kid uh, doesn't have any friends, especially because there's one high and mighty kid um, who looks down on a preacher's kid, um, which is something I've told really happens. Uh, I remember hearing this a long time ago, more than once, that um, kids who are... um, who have preacher fathers um, have a tougher time of it with their um, uh, schoolmates. So, so Amanda is the, um, is the bone of contention here. And she gets a wonderful song in the second act. Um, It is a talk musical. And uh, Chloe cheers is the girl who uh, does it. Terrific rendition of a song. Um, It's, it, it's not overdone at all. It's the type of song that if we're on American Idol would be overdone like crazy. Um, and it's very nice to see a young girl not American idolizing it. And of course, under those circumstances, we all also have to thank John Rando for doing a good job. So um, what happens in the show is that um, Opal meets very many colorful characters. She meets a librarian, um, 
wonderfully played by Isabel Keating, um, who, of course, we remember as Judy Garland in The Boy from Oz, and um, also meets a... Um, an eccentric woman who everybody thinks um, all the kids think um, think of Boo Radley and um, To Kill a Mockingbird, that type of thing. They think she's a witch and all this kind of stuff. Well, Opal comes to know her and um, finds out she's hardly that at all and um, brings this eccentric uh, loner recluse back into society, which is really nice. Roz Ryan does uh, the job and does it splendidly. So I hope this show has a future. It's a quiet show in many ways, and it's one of those not-much-happened shows. It's more of a character study show but it's awfully good and um as long as Bodie is alive um may it <laughs> go see it this it, it, it's done so well at good speed that it's been extended and there, there are performances this week it closes this week but there are performances this week and if you're anywhere east of the mississippi or north of the mason dixon line you really should go um because i was a little act- i was a little worried i was a little worried when you began talking about the dog i was thinking is the dog the best thing about the show so i was a little worried so i'm glad to hear it's worth seeing period (laughs) yes um perhaps the dog is the best thing in the show but that said uh, (laughs) we're talking about uh like a plus as as opposed to a you know so um so the the musical itself is is quite accomplished i'm glad they had to extend it also another compliment the show got at good speed was that usually new musicals are at good speed at Chester, the smaller venue. They believed in this one so much they put it on the main stage. Um, So that's really nice too. Now this show has been in other theaters. It's been seen in Arkansas. It's been seen in Delaware. It's been seen in Alabama. And this is the fourth jewel of the quadruple crown. And um, whatever those other productions were like, however much work was done or wasn't done, I'd say the show is now ready to come in and uh, be a nice hit here in New York. Anyway, it's quite good now. And what's uh, I have to say that it occurred to me that one of the reasons uh, that it was chosen at good speed goes to the fact that um, Michael Gennaro runs good speed. His father was Peter Gennaro, who choreographed Annie and won a Tony for it. So Michael Gennaro, growing up, is no stranger to a musical about a little girl and a dog. <laughs> and maybe this was, at least subconsciously, some influence in his um, making the decision. Whatever was conscious or subconscious, uh, let his consciousness be his guide. He did, and I'm glad he did. <laughs> Okay, so that is Because of Winn-Dixie at the Goodspeed Opera House. I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well, so you can check that out. So, Jan, you got... um, I actually don't know where this is. You got to see A White Man's Guide to Rikers Island. Uh, So tell us about this show. Yeah, it's playing at um, a small upstairs theater in the theater district called The Producers Club. Oh, okay. uh, and I had I had never been there. It's on Forty Fourth Street. Uh, there seemed to be a complex of of theaters uh, up these sort of rickety, I have to say, steps. And uh, this play is running at one of them. Uh, it's 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 an interesting backstory. It's written by a guy named Richard Roy. 
uh, he has a, a co-writer, Eric C. Webb, but it's written by Roy and it is his story. He uh, started off uh, as a young kid in New Jersey who wanted to be a boxer and he uh, trained to be a boxer and uh got into the Golden Gloves here in New York and eventually became actually a sparring partner with Muhammad Ali. Mm. And then uh, a couple of years later, he decided he, he wanted to move into acting and he became successful with that too. Uh, he worked on uh, a Broadway. He worked in some soap operas. He worked down at the public theater. And then came the incident that changed his life. And I don't think it's a spoiler to to say this because it says a white man's guide to Rikers Island. Uh, he, he is a white guy. And he... Uh, gets into a, uh, a traffic accident when he is high. He's high on drugs. He's high on drinking. Uh, it's not that he's a, a drug addict or, or anything like that. He's been out celebrating because he's doing so well in his life. And he loses control of his uh, car and he kills a man. Mm. And he is uh, uh, locked up on Rikers Island while they are waiting for his trial, which is what happens. Rikers Island serves as this holding place uh, for people who are awaiting trial. And he is basically a middle class white kid and he's terrified of being in this uh, in, in this prison. He's never thought about, about being in jail. He, uh, most of the people there are brown and black people, and he's really nervous and scared. And it's about his experience uh, being uh, there for, I think, uh, maybe just about a year. Uh, on Rikers Island. And what it does is to give an inside look at what life is like there. And there seems to be a lot of interest lately, perhaps because of all of the conversation about mass incarceration. Uh, But there's been uh, a lot of interest in what goes on in prisons. There's this really popular podcast called Ear Hustle of that talks about what it's like to live in San Quentin in uh, California. And so this play, which is, I think we call it a one-man show because I'm not exactly sure. The The writer comes up, it opens with the writer, with uh, Richard Roy, sitting on a stage telling us what happened, his, the setup of how, how well his life was going, how it fell into disaster. And then the play moves back to his year uh, uh, on Rikers Island, and a young actor comes on and portrays him. 
So I think it's a one-man show because the young actor is the only actor. Roy leaves the stage. The actor is the only uh, actor on the stage, although he portrays other characters that Roy encounters uh, uh, at Rikers Island. It's... um, it doesn't turn out exactly as one might think uh, from all sorts of prison dramas and so on because it's rooted in a real experience. It's what his life was really actually like. It's not as dramatic, again, as on television and in the movies, but it's, 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 it's no picnic, obviously, uh, either. The performer... A young guy uh, named Connor Chase Stewart is really, really excellent. I, I had uh, he was entirely new to me. Um, it says in his bio that he trained at the London Academy of Music uh, and Dramatic Arts, and then at Stella Adler, and has done, uh, I guess, some work with the Upright Citizens Brigade, but. Uh, this is my first time uh, encountering him, and he's just a really, really fine actor. It was directed by Thomas Waits, who, again, is someone who is uh, new to me. Uh, so it's this unusual little piece in this strange little theater uh, about a, a very different kind of subject than we find uh, in uh, most theater, most plays we see, but it's compelling. It's totally compelling. And uh, it has been extended. It was supposed to end uh, yesterday, August 31st, and it's been extended through September 21st, I think. It plays only on the weekends, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Again, it's a very small uh, space, uh, but I don't think the tickets are expensive, and it's uh, it's a thought-provoking uh, play about who are the people that uh, we lock up uh, in this country, what their lives are like both outside and inside of uh, a prison, and uh, thought-provoking. I I think I'll end there with saying it's a thought-provoking piece of work and very, very well done. Okay, so that is A White Man's Guide to Rutgers Island. I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well and all the information for the Producers Club. And as Jan mentioned, it's been extended through September 29th, so don't pay attention to the website that says it's ending yesterday. All right, Peter, I think that the folks who run the White Man's Guide to Rutgers Island website might need some tech support. But unfortunately, <laughs> you got over to 59 East 59 and saw a play called, is it a play or a musical? It's called Tech it's Support. Played. It's a play. It's so tell yeah. us about Tech Support. Uh, tech, it's funny. We talked about um, <clears throat> Make Believe starting off um, in a funny fashion and um, then getting more serious as well as uh, Eureka Day. Well, 
Um, so does Deborah Wilchfields play tech support. That's hardly a criticism, by the way. However, um, what we have here is a woman going crazy trying to get the right person on the phone to fix her printer. Um, <laughs> which of us could not share that pain? You know, getting. I was uh, going to dial- say, been there. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. Who hasn't? Uh, you know, press one for this, uh, press two for that. Your waiting time will be, uh, and then you get somebody um, who doesn't speak English terribly well. Um, and all that goes with it. And um, and she wishes that she could be in a time where this doesn't happen. And that's where it becomes fantasy. She is brought back in time where there aren't these machines at all. And um, so it seems like the play is going to be <clears throat> about, look, for all we feel about uh, the problems of having these uh, devices, which of us has not walked down the street and bumped into somebody who's been looking at, at uh, his or her phone and hasn't been paying attention to walking? All those things that drive us crazy about these devices. We assume this play is going to say we're lucky to have them, and there are downsides to them, there are problems with them, but nevertheless, try living without them. In fact, um, I think I heard that there was a challenge that um, some company or organization would give some somebody a million dollars if uh, he or she could live without a cell phone for a year. So um, so you think that's the way the play is going to go. But actually, it gets more charming than that. And it's very nice that it surprises us because, as I say, we do expect it to go in that direction. Um, <clears throat> so she goes back in time, way back in time, uh, back to 1919 before the women have the vote. And so many points are made there about how difficult things were for women in those days who were desperately trying to get the vote. So um, so that's <laughs> – there's one point. By the way, I have to mention this. I'm going to go back. Um, when, when she's talking to the um, – uh, the uh, Hindu Indian on the phone uh, who's trying to steer her uh, in the right direction with the printer, that uh, she actually lies down on the couch. And it looks like she's at a psychiatrist's office, the way she's lying down. It's just so funny because, you know, she almost needs that type of support under those um, um, could be. So, so she goes back to 1919. One thing I'd like to see Deborah Whitfield do is have the women comment immediately, the two women she meets immediately comment on the fact that she's dressed so differently. They eventually do, but considering that she's uh, dressed in essentially a jumpsuit, um, with you know, um, which involves uh, let's let's call them tights. You know, I, I would think that they would think this is scandalously. Um, <laughs> different and uh, that they would comment on immediately. So I think uh, that's the case. I do believe that Pamela, who is our heroine, beautifully, wonderfully, terrifically played by an actress named Margot White, phenomenal performance, endearing, funny, sincere, really a terrific performance. Um, I do think that it takes her a little too long to catch on to what's happening to her. Um, so I do think that that could be, um, um, and she does make a few mistakes in assuming things. once she realizes where she is by saying things like, do you recycle? Well, of course that's an unknown concept in 1919. So, um, but, the idea of going back in time and reiterating the problems that these people had, she goes back to 1919, she goes back to 1946, she goes back to 1978, um, and each time she goes back, she she certainly finds out 
that um, there were problems then that she doesn't have now. And I'm not talking technology. All right. Now, the other thing is that it turns out to be a love story of a very different kind. And um, that's very fine, too. Partly, partly because we have a tremendously new discovery who's a real find, a guy named Ryan Avalos, A-V-A-L-O-S. Terrific um, in playing uh, the romantic character here through time. Uh, at one point, he's the son of the person before, et cetera, et cetera. So um, terrific. And um, the two make a terrifically um, engaging couple. And we're really rooting for their success. Of course, they do run into uh, obstacles. They'd have to, or else there'd be no play. And uh, the ending um, is um, quite satisfying in the way that um, Deborah Whitfield works it out. Let me also um, give a shout out to Mark Lotito, an actor I've known for a long time. He was in Jersey Boys for a long, long time, too. Uh, An actor I first met in the 80s, and I don't think he's aged a day. Um, but he's also terrific in playing three different roles and playing them very distinctively. So um, I think tech support has a future. Um, no matter what happens in our technological society, uh, I think it will have a future as the years go on. But there are certainly many things that we cannot begin to envision that will be part of our daily lives in 20 years that we all think, how do we ever live without them? Could we have ever lived without them? Um, but I do think that uh, we may be seeing tech support in 20 years because it's that good a play okay for fear of sounding like a broken record i'm going to say 59 east 59 we need we need to all i'd see, love that place everything there yeah it's just, I'd love uh, it. been a huge great streak of uh winning shows there all right uh jan mm-hmm. i have in my notes here that uh you had read a book called Ensemble and Oral History of Chicago Theater, which sounds fascinating. Do you uh, want to say a few words about that? It is fascinating. Uh, this is a book um, you've given the, the, the title. is written by a guy named Mark Larson, and he spent five years interviewing over 300 people associated with Chicago theater, starting in the 1950s and it, it it's he modeled himself on Studs Terkel the great interviewer who, who talked to people about the work they did their love for their work and the two things that really emanate from this book I'm only It's a big book. It's 700 pages. And I'm only a third of the way through. Uh, It took about 200 pages before we even get to Steppenwolf. Um, this starts wow. this starts off with the compass players uh, who uh, were predecessors of uh, uh, of Second City, uh, Elaine May and... Um, Mike Nichols. Uh, it's amazing how many people came out of Chicago. And the two things, the one thing that they talk about, everyone in this book talks about, is the sense of community that they saw themselves as. And that's the title is intentionally chosen Ensemble. They saw themselves as creating theater, not to promote themselves, but to 
promote the community of theater in Chicago. It, and the uh, I'm still in the 1970s, um, beginning in the late 40s, and now I, I've, I've finally gotten to the mid-70s. And this is before... We've really got uh, the the big regional theater movement. It's it's nascent. It's just beginning, and so there isn't the kind of money. I know there's not a lot of money in theater mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, even today. But then there was like no money, minus money, uh, and people are doing this for the love of the work. Uh, Lori Metcalf, I just read uh, uh, her uh, one of her sections. I mean, you know, the comments are interspersed throughout the oral history. He returns to people when he's talking about particular uh, times. And she talks about the fact that when they started Steppenwolf, they're just a group of, of friends, of college friends, people who were dating other people. They were all interested in doing this theater. And that for her, she was working a secretarial job during the day to pay her rent. And then she went straight to this theater that they persuaded someone to give them. Uh, where they work, they being Gary Sinise and Jeff Perry, um, Joan uh, Joan Allen. There's a. I think the last thing I read is Austin Pendleton uh, goes out there. People, I know people listening to this podcast know Austin Pendleton, writer, director, actor, and he goes out there sort of reluctantly because he's written a play. It's done very well in New York. And they want to do it in Chicago. He's just had a kid. He doesn't want to go to Chicago. But he goes to Chicago and he thinks, I'm just going to stage it the same way I did in New York, take the money and go back to New York. He goes there and they say, we want you to... um, work with this group of people. They call themselves the Steppenwolf Company. And and he goes and he's sitting there to to audition them for the parts. And he says, I had to choose between Joan Allen and Laurie Metcalf. I said, I'm staging this whole thing all over again. This is a fantastic group of actors. It is just a wonderful book to read about people who just love theater, just love the making of uh, of theater. I can't recommend this book uh, highly enough. So um, Matt Tamanini interviewed uh, Mark on Tell Me More uh, about uh, six weeks ago or so. I'll have a link to that in the show notes, the uh, Matt Tamanini's Tell Me More, episode 32, Mark Larson on Chicago's gritty theatrical community. It's a great listen to as well. And I have a link to Mark's book on Amazon as well so that we can check it out. You can get the 700-page version or the much lighter Kindle version. um, uh, Matt's Matt's show Matt's show Matt's interview is where I found out about this book and 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 it um, it the 
interview that Matt did was before the book was released. And and Matt's interview was so good, and not just patting us on the back here at Broadway Radios, but Matt's interview was so good that I wrote down the pub date and got the book as soon as it was released. And it lived up to Matt's uh, interview. So thanks, Matt. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, also, to wrap up the morning, Jan, uh, you want to give us a little preview of a, a theater production called Felix Starro at the Maiyi Theater? Yeah, I don't think I can review it because it's opening uh, this week, but I do want to just alert listeners that this is a show um, that they should put on their radar screen. Uh, it's it's being done at Theater Row on 42nd Street. It's a musical. It is very proudly the, uh, billing itself as the first Filipino musical. It is about uh, someone... It's based on a short story. It's about um, a Filipino characters. Uh, Again, I can't say too much except um, watch out for this one. I have to say, um, (laughs) I may be wrong about this, but um, I I think I saw an all-Filipino musical uh, many moons ago uh, at the St. George Cathedral called Yankee Panky, but again... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe ha, not. Ha, ha. I did see it. Whether or not it, I, I came from the Philippines. Whether or not it was written by Filipinos is uh, something I. Ah, I have it, to if share. it came if it came from the Philippines, then then that might be um, the difference that Mayi is making because all of the um, people uh, associated with this uh, production are Filipino Americans. Uh huh. So we're slicing it thin, but maybe they can still get their claim to be the first by uh, by by doing that. But Peter, I I really hope you'll see this because I and 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 Michael um, because I would love to hear what you guys think because you're so steeped in in musicals and I'd love to hear what you guys think of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Check it out, and uh, if you're a listener, you know, weigh in and let us know what you thought about that as well. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in. Stitcher, Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can find finer podcasts, you can listen to Broadway Radio. It would be a great help to us if you can go there and give us a, a good review, a five-star review at any of these places that you listen to is it really helps other people find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Jan, for Peter, for me can be found in the show notes of Broadway Radio as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yes, indeed. Um, The question was, for both of them, it was their second Broadway show. They didn't have great roles, for they pretty much functioned as backup singers to the stars. Some years later... One of these former backup singers landed a part in a high-profile revival before deciding not to do it. <coughs> the replacement was the other former backup singer, who eventually had to be very glad that things turned out the way they did. Who are the people and the show involved? 
Well, Ed Glazier was the first to say the show is Sherry Renee Scott, Everyday Rapture. The two actresses with minor roles were Betsy Wolf and Lindsay Mendez. Betsy Wolf was cast as Carrie in the recent Carousel revival, but left and was replaced by Lindsay Mendez, who had the good fortune to win a Tony for Best Supporting Actress in a Musical. Okay, so Ed was the first to get it. Second to guess was Rob Johnson, followed by Deb Popple, Mike Meany, Allison from Toronto. She says her last name is so difficult, she'd just as soon be <laughs> identified by that. And believe me, I know about difficult last names. From Toronto uh, Ka- doesn't sound very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy Jones, Michael Weaver, and Jeff Hickman. The one and only Tony Janicki took not one, not two, but three guesses, all of which were wrong. I mentioned this to one of the correct answerers who said, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have a little schadenfreude towards Tony being stumped. So anyway, let's see how Tony does this week and everybody else. What famous musical mentions Santa Claus in two different songs? Okay. If you have an answer to that, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We will not make fun of you. At least I won't. <laughs> I think I've been doing this, uh, what I've been doing this, uh, 11 years, you know, roughly 500 some odd shows, and I've never gotten one. So don't fear out there. And, you know, I, I, I see a, a fairly quite a lot of theater. So, don't you? Yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, anywhere, where was I? So uh, if you haven't answered that, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Jan Simpson and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, and happy Labor Day. Yes, indeed. Ooh, raise his voice, raise his voice in praise. Ooh, raise his voice, raise his voice in praise. He doesn't like to be alone or tied. He just wants to be free. Could I bring him in? No. He'll sit and stand.